Well, good morning. Um, I'm glad you could join us for our Sabbath morning live stream. Uh, big thank you to Jinha, who is the uh, tech guru for this morning. Um, appreciate her um, being able to take care of all the audio issues. Um, so I hope that you're able to, uh, I hope that as we have entered into the Christmas season that uh, you've been able to enjoy the festive moments um, of this season. Um, while I don't consider myself to be a Grinch um, of, of Christmas, I usually don't get into the spirit of Christmas either. Um, however, it was a little bit different for me uh, this year. This to work. Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit different for me this year. Uh, every day for the first week of December, or during the first week of December, Micah and Joshua would ask us, uh, can we put up the Christmas decorations? And they were just, once they get locked into something, they are, they, they will not forget certain things. And the decorations were certainly one of those things that they didn't forget. Well, finally, uh, one Sunday came around and, uh, I pulled out the decorations from the storage and, uh, we, we started putting, uh, up the, the Christmas tree and the decorations and the lights. And as we put on the Christmas pay- playlist and, and started decorating our house, uh, let me see if I can get this picture up here. Uh, the boys started dancing around, they were playing with the ornaments, and I remember the first time we turned on the Christmas lights, uh, the boys' faces just kind of lit up. And, and this probably happens every year, but for some reason, um, watching the boys get into the Christmas spirit this year uh, made it more meaningful for me. Um, today, the sermon is entitled, uh, All These Things and More, The Meaning of Christmas. This sermon title comes from uh, a song uh, called What Christmas Means to Me, and it was originally recorded by Stevie Wonder in 1967. Um, this song was originally written by Alan Story, Anna Gordy Gay, who was the wife of Marvin Gay, and George Gordy, who was the brother, uh, whose brother started Motown. Now, since its release in uh, 1967, over 30 artists from around the world have covered uh, have covered this song, and it's become this international, uh, well-known song. Now, the talented musicians of, of Motown uh, played an important role in uh, racial integration of popular music. Uh, these writers were able to create songs that people from around the world could connect to. And when you read through the lyrics of what Christmas means to me, um, anyone can find meaning in some part of the song because Christmas is meaningful. Today, I want to look at the Christmas story and how the birth of Christ um, has different meaning for different characters within the story of Christ. And I'm just going to um, hold on, put you on a slide. I've got to change some things around. Sorry, I had to reorient the screens because I couldn't see some important information. (laughs) So, yeah, today we're going to be looking at the Christmas story. And the two main passages that we're going to be covering today are Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2. So for those of you who want to join along in your own Bibles, uh, feel free to open up to uh, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. We're going to be jumping around um, between the the two chapters. So we begin in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The, 
Bible says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first, or excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Bible says that um, it came to pass that there's a degree. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be register, registered. This census first took place while uh, Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. The Bible associates the birth of Christ with a historical reference on purpose, or with a purpose, I should say. Uh, Caesar Augustus may have arbitrarily called uh, this census, but this decision triggers the events that lead to the fulfillment of prophecy. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, and I'm not going to read this, but I'll let you look at, uh, look at it. So in Matthew chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew quotes the book of Micah, showing that Jesus' birth fulfills the Old Testament prophecy that a promised Savior and ruler would be born in Bethlehem. Now, in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, this text tells us that Jesus' parents lived in Nazareth, but that because Joseph comes from the lineage or family line of David, he has to fill, he has to fill out the census in the city of Beth, uh, Bethlehem. Now, it's not an accident that Caesar makes these specific rules around the census of Rome. Jesus, in his ministry and in his own cryptic way, references his birthplace uh, to bring attention to his origins. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, or he calls himself the bread of life. Now, if you break down the name Bethlehem in Hebrew, it means house of bread. And here's the etymology there for you. So Jesus, the bread of life, was born in the house of bread or the bakery. When we look at the story of the birth of Christ through this lens, through the lens or through the perspective of prophecy, the fact that the events that trigger the birth of Christ are pre-planned, um, it helps us interact with history in a little bit of a different manner. Uh, A.T. Peterson, uh, Pearson used to say, history is his story. There's another quote from the book Education, uh, found in page 174. It says, In the annals of human history, the growth of nations, the rise and fall of empires, appears as dependent on the will and prowess of man. The shaping of events seems to a great degree to be determined by his power, ambition, or caprice. But in the word of God, the curtain is drawn aside, and we behold, behind, above, and through all the play and counterplay of human interests and power and passions, the agencies of the all-merciful one, silently, patiently working out the counsels of his own will. That's a very long sentence. (laughs) So the story of the birth of Christ sets into motion God's plan to save humanity. And in this story, there are three groups of people that we're going to be talking about. Now, we're going to do a two-part 
uh, Christmas series, uh, Christmas sermon series. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the first two groups of people. The first group are the ones that embrace, or excuse me, the first group is the group that rejects God's plan as it conflicts with their own interests. The second group is the group that is unaware of the significance of God's plan. They just don't know that it's happening, but their lives are significantly impacted by that, uh, by that event or his birth. The third group is the group of people that embrace God's plan. So today we'll look at the first two groups. Let's start with those that reject God's plan. So Herod was an interesting historical figure, and in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, um, and I'll be looking at a few verses at it, uh, a couple verses at a time. It, it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Um, it says that the Bible says that wise men from the east come to Jerusalem inquiring about this king that is to be born of the Jews. So Matthew writes that these wise men come from the east, and the origin of these wise men are a bit of a mystery. Uh, what, who are these wise men? Why are they drawn by a star? What leads them to Jerusalem? Um, you know, we're kind of, we, we live in a unique geographic area where if we look at the Southern Cross up in the, up, up in the sky at night, um, we can only see it in our, um, I guess our part of the world, but um, people in New Zealand can see the star as well. And so, if these wise men were drawn by the star, how do they know to stop in Jerusalem? Well, one possibility is to consider the influence of uh, Hebrews throughout history, Hebrews such as Daniel and his three friends. If you think about it, they were taken captive to Babylon, a land that is in the east, and they serve under multiple rulers such as Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, and Cyrus and Darius, the kings of or the rulers of uh, the Medes and the Persians. The, these four Hebrews um, held positions of distinction for many years. Uh, they were students of prophecy, of scripture, and of the stars. If you look at Daniel chapter two. Verse 1, the Bible tells us that uh, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit is troubled with him, uh, within him, and the company that is with Daniel and his three friends, they're magicians, they're astrologers, they're sorcerers, they're Chaldeans. So the book of Daniel tells us that um, Daniel held a position of influence with people who regularly studied the stars. I would imagine that there would be a very natural discussion, uh, there would be natural discussions that would take place between Daniel and his colleagues. Um, and what's interesting is that in Numbers chapter four, uh, 24, verse 17, the Bible says, the Bible gives this prophecy, there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It'd be very natural to have this discussion for between the Hebrews and the other Chaldeans about this celestial anomaly that would occur that would signify the coronation of special royalty. Now, when Herod hears about this, um, yeah, when Herod hears about this, uh, the Bible says that he's troubled by what he hears. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. 
the Bible says that Herod calls in the priests, he calls in the scholars to confirm that there is a prophecy in Scripture. And when the prophecy is confirmed, the Bible says that Herod lies to the wise men and he tells them that he too wants to worship the child and he asks them, please tell me where the child is once you find him. Well, if we continue reading on this story, it says, When the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. This story is filled with miraculous intervention. It's filled with prophecy. It's filled with God interacting with humanity. And if there's anything that, any lesson that we can pull from uh, this first group of people who uh, reject God's plan, it's that God is able to work through and around the difficulties um, that present themselves. And I guess for us, as we kind of have gone through this pandemic and we've kind of asked this question, God, where are you in the midst of all the difficulty? Where are you in the midst of uh, the frustrations? And sometimes um, there are these dangers that present themselves where we feel like there isn't an answer. And when I think about the Christmas story, it just kind of reaffirms that, yes, there are challenges that are before us, but also, yes, God has a plan. You know, when I think about this story here in Luke and in Matthew, um, it's incredible to me that God uses a star to communicate to the wise men of the East. God uses the wise men of the East to communicate to King Herod. God uses King Herod to communicate to the chief, uh, to the chief priests and the scribes, and from there, all of Jerusalem hears about the birth of Christ. And, and you really see how these relationships um, are very intentional. Um, who are the priests and the scribes going to listen to? Well, they will definitely listen to King Herod, but they might not listen to the wise men of the East. And, and if you just kind of link the chain of events that take place, you see God working and his plan unfolding um, to bring about the birth of Christ. It's amazing to me that God reaches out to those, even to those who are not interested. I think sometimes there are moments where we wonder, um, God, what about those people who I'm trying to reach out to right now? What about the people that I care for? And when I read this story, I see God's hand moving, even when we cannot see God's hand moving. Let's talk about the second group of people. In this story, there's a second group of people who are unaware of God's plan. Forgive the, uh, forgive the uh, capital L there. And that's the babies. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, the story goes that Herod hears about the fact that the wise men do not return to tell him where uh, this, this newborn king was born. And the story says that he gets exceedingly angry, and he goes and he puts to death all the male children who are in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time when he had determined from the wise men. 
Now, this is a really sad part of the story of the birth of Christ, and I guess it it creates a little bit of uh, tension in that the birth of Christ was supposed to bring about hope for humanity, but there's some collateral damage here in that here you have this large group of innocent babies, and they have no say in what happens. They don't get to accept the plan. They don't get to reject the plan. They are just their collateral damage. And so it's a very uncomfortable part of the story where the birth of Christ leads to the death of all these uh, all these young baby boys. And it's interesting reading through the Bible commentaries to kind of look for an answer, to look for a response. And there really isn't a great response uh, that comes from the scholarly world. And so for me, um, one, it helps to know what kind of a person Herod was in history. Um, and two, I believe there are some other passages in Scripture that give light uh, to respond to this query or this question or this uncomfortable incident. So first, let's look at the story of Herod. And uh, just briefly touching on this um, controversial char- uh, character, um, Herod through history, or excuse me, uh, history shows that by nature, Herod was just a suspicious man. Um, his family history is littered with deception and intrigue. Uh, in his life, Herod had sent away his first wife uh, along with their two children so that he could marry his second wife. And his second wife had connections to the um, the the aristocracy, I suppose, of the Jewish uh, people. And he, trying to connect with the people he was trying to rule, decided, I will marry again, and um, and that way it'll build some political connections. Well, later on, his sister uh, was quite jealous of his relationship with his second wife, and she tried creating a rift between the two of them. And uh, eventually, Herod ended up murdering his second wife, along with their two children, his wife's brother, uh, his wife's grandfather, and his wife's mother, out of fear that the whole family was conspiring against him. And so that kind of gives you a picture of what kind of a person Herod was. And so... As he heard about the story of these children who, uh, or as he heard about the story of this promised child that was going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, you kind of see his character kind of come out and, and um, he just ends up losing it. Well, the story is, oh, the, the question that comes from the story is, God, uh, why do you let this happen? And what do you do about this situation? How do we respond when innocent people, um, innocent people die? And I suppose in this story, because it's in the context of the salvation of humanity, how does God interact with people who never had a ch- chance to respond or people who just were unaware of God's plan, never felt compelled to respond to God's plan? How does God approach or view these individuals? What is God's response? If you look at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, Paul gives this um, explanation of how God interacts with believers versus unbelievers. And specifically in Romans chapter 2, Paul gives this explanation of 
how God responds in judgment. And here, we're going to specifically be looking at Gentiles, people who do not believe in God, people who were never exposed to uh, truth or scripture, uh, people who just for one reason or another have not responded to um, specifically Jesus in, in this context. So Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Uh, excuse me, 12 to 14, excuse me. So reading here, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things that are in the law, these also, not having the law, are a law to themselves. I realize this is kind of a handful to listen to, but hopefully you can read through it and I'll narrate afterwards or I'll, I'll explain afterwards. Um, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now notice, especially from verse 14, Paul spends a little bit of time looking at how God views those who do not believe. He says they don't have the law, they don't have the truth, they don't have scripture. Um, but there's certain things that are intuitively moral, intuitively right. And I think that um, each and every one of us have this moral compass. Um, deep down inside, we know what's right, we know what's wrong. And here in judgment, um, Paul says that God takes that into consideration. There are people who don't know about Jesus. They've never taken the time to get to know Jesus. Um, and yet, they've responded to goodness. They're, they've practiced that which they know to be right, and they've been consistent with that their whole lives. And here, and, and, and actually I shouldn't say their whole lives, it's, this is people who have made that decision, I'm going to respond to the good that I know. And, and God looks at that and he says, Yep, I accept that as good enough. And this is an incredible, incredible statement here because Paul is saying that in judgment, normally as a, as a church or as Christians, we would say, well, you need to believe in Jesus. Um, and, and as you follow Jesus, as he leads and guides your life, you learn what it means to love, to practice kindness, to practice mercy, to experience goodness, to experience transformation. And it's within the love of God and within that relationship with Christ that we experience salvation and hope. But then there are those who are not necessarily going to respond to that. And yeah, Paul just says this incredible, incredible statement that God looks at the heart and says, yep, you've practiced goodness. I accept that as good enough. Now, of course, the natural question is going to be, okay, well, if I don't have to be a Christian, why would I want to be a Christian? Or if I don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist, why would I want to be a Seventh-day Adventist? And Paul answers this in the very next verse, or excuse me, in the very next chapter. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I'll just read it to you. It says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And so, Paul's response would be, well, what benefit is there to being a Christian? What benefit is there to being a believer? Or what benefit is there to be a Seventh-day Adventist? And the response is, 
there is every advantage in that you have the truth. In other words, there is something in, there's something inherently good about um, the teachings of God. Uh, I think sometimes we can look at the commandments as rules and they seem burdensome and it's kind of like I can never I can never keep all the commandments. But if we take away our inability to be perfect, and that isn't what God calls us to do, uh, God doesn't ask us to be perfect, but if you look at the inherent value of the teachings and the truth of God, then they begin to make sense, and they don't become more of a burden. Rather, it's something that we just try and learn from and try and naturally mature into gracefully. And so, um, yeah, I, I love how Paul balances these two ideas in that he says, God is merciful. He is good. He is just. And so there are all these questions like, what happened to the babies? What happened to those that never make that decision to follow Christ? Paul would say, God is fair. He's a good, merciful judge. And then for those who would say, well, then why would I believe anyway? Paul would say, because you have the truth and it is good. The story gives me a lot of encouragement because we see the mercy and the heart of God in Scripture. Yes, there are stories that cause questions. There are moments where in our own lives, from our own experiences, we kind of wonder, God, what are you like? But as you explore Scripture, as you study it more and more, you will see a God who is genuinely good and kind and merciful. And I hope that this Christmas season that you can experience the presence of God in your own heart and that you can know the love of God. There's one final passage that I want to read to you, and that's in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. This is kind of one of the most well-known passages in the Christmas story. And in the story, um, it says that these angels appear before these shepherds and they kind of proclaim this this statement, and uh, the statement reads, or this this proclamation reads, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men." It's my prayer that you can experience the goodness and the peace that God wants to offer you, um, and that as a result you can also glorify God. You know that statement. Uh, peace is not the kind of peace that is, uh, it's not, it's not comfort. It's not about, uh, freedom from conflict. The peace that the Bible talks about is different. And John himself says, or excuse me, Jesus himself says, uh, peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Uh, this peace has to do more with character rather than circumstance. This peace has more to do with salvation rather than our present-day circumstance. And so I hope that as you really meditate and think about the birth of Christ, that the hope that's found in Jesus, the message of salvation, brings you that peace that doesn't necessarily change the circumstances around us, but it has the power to change our character, to give us strength and resilience in the midst of these difficult times that we face. May God bless you as you think about his word. Would you join me in prayer as we finish? Father God, uh, we come before you today, and as we 
think about the Christmas story uh, as we think about these two different groups of people, one group that rejected your plan, another group that was unaware of your plan, in both cases, you're wanting, you're wanting and willing to reach out to these individuals. It is in your heart to save humanity. And I pray that as we go through this season, that we would, we would be reminded of your grace, your goodness, and your mercy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.